For Sunday, December 10th, 2017. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a theater journalist and historian with a number of books. His most recent is The Great Parade, which is available everywhere. His columns appear at MTI, Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, and many other places. Good morning, Peter. Hi. Hi. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at filespotphoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. Both of you survived SantaCon, huh? Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it wasn't in my immediate neighborhood this year. Uh, Thank you. Really? (laughs) Really? Hell's Hell's Kitchen usually gets overrun with many Santas. Well, it seemed like uh, I saw something online about where they were supposed to be, and I guess they suppose I guess they target different places. Uh, and, yeah. and it was mm-hmm. I mean, I'm sure some of them turned up eventually, but but you know, with all those Santas in Times Square, you just think it's more characters to take pictures with. <laughs> <laughs> if you have the money. <laughs> yeah, exactly. With us this morning, we have a very special guest. Eva Nobozada is with us. Uh, Broadway fans know Eva from uh, her current production as uh, Kim in Miss Saigon on Broadway, which she was fortunate enough to also do on the West End. Eva, thanks for get, getting up on a Sunday morning and chatting with us at Broadway Radio. We really appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much for having me. So you are coming down in the final stretches, final couple of weeks of uh, of playing Kim on Broadway. Tell us, how has your experience been so far? It's been incredible. I'm going to definitely miss this show, but I've been with it for quite some time now, so, and I yeah. could easily tell you I could write a book with how much I've learned um, in life and on stage from doing this role. So <laughs> I'm, it'll be sad to leave her, but um, definitely... Um, have so many incredible memories from Kim. All right. So what would be in chapter one? Ooh. Ooh, who asked that? That's a hard question. I mean, I think it would be before, I mean, Kim and I started out and when you see Kim in the beginning, she says she's 17 and she's new today. I was 17 when I started the role. And it, it's quite interesting, the, the, the amount of things that I've learned and the kind of woman that I, I, I am today. Um, and you compare that to the the girl I was when I started out, it's really an incredible journey. So Kim and I kind of grew up together in, in a way. Well, I think Peter and I were maybe perhaps thinking that chapter one might be the Jimmy Awards. And maybe you could talk about that a little bit. That is very clever. The Jimmy Awards is, I think, one of the most 
incredible things. It's the most, um, it's an incredible way to showcase young talent in America. And I mean, without it, I wouldn't be here obviously. And without, Mm -hmm. um, um, I was a finalist, one of the six um, finalists um, there, the Jimmy Awards in 2013, I believe. And Tara Rubin was there lucky enough. And she happened to be aware of the Miss Saigon auditions. And I didn't, um, I had no idea. So she helped set up my audition for Cameron and for Saigon and, because of her, really, I got the chance to um, be exposed to the um, to Cameron, and um, I auditioned twice here in New York, and then I got the role. So, really, right, <laughs> perfect timing and the perfect um, woman who was sat in the audience who just put two and two together. Really, well, it I have talked to your parents, and um, God loved them for driving. Carolina to have you come back uh, for oh those God, auditions. Yeah. Uh, you, it's really terrific that they were on your side and really thought that you had a chance to do it. And especially, as you say, you were 17 and suddenly you were living at home and then all of a sudden there you were in London living by yourself. And I mean, that's, that's oh, quite yeah. a leap, yeah. isn't it? Oh, absolutely. My parents have been nothing but supportive and encouraging. And um, most importantly, um, I, as much as they wanted me to pursue my career and my passion, they always kind of kept Eva in check, which I think is the most important thing. You know, whenever they uh, caught me slipping, they were there to kind of nip it in the bud and go, nope, remember where you came from, remember who you are. Um, That's kind of the most important thing for me. Well, the other thing, too, is uh, you were a student of uh, Corey Mitchell, who won the first Tony Award for uh, Teacher of the Year. So uh, was he important to your uh, growth as an artist? Yeah, sure. He was, he's he's, he's just a funniest, loveliest man ever. And he's, I mean, he's obviously, obviously there. I, I started to go to that school when I was around 11. So I've known him for quite some time. Um, it, yeah, it's, it's amazing. <laughs> he won that. He's so, so deserving of that. And in fact, has he come to see you in the show? He has, he has. And I've, it's funny to see him at like some of those New York parties. And I'm like, <laughs> there's, Corey, there's Corey Mitchell. But um, yeah, he's a ball of laughs. In fact, what roles did you play in high school um, under his tutelage? Oh, goodness. I played um, Juliet and Romeo and Juliet. I did a few plays um, with Bonnie Fraker. I did um, Ariel and Footloose, Maria and West Side Story. Um, oh, God. I, I honestly, I can honestly tell you, I really can't remember the shows right now. So suddenly it's, it was <laughs> I, a long time I feel ago. Like that was, I, I know. I feel like that was 10 years ago. And it was sure. not it was pretty dramatic. <laughs> But let me. I did let, a lot, though. <laughs> but let me ask this, uh, and for our listeners who who don't know, the Jimmy Awards are the National High School Musical Theater Awards. What was the role uh, that you were up for that year? Ariel and Footloose. Um, oh, that was fun. So my red cowboy boots, and yeah, holding out for a hero was kind of the song that got me. <laughs> How funny <laughs> is that? I just think that's really weird. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, uh, these days you're a girl no more, aren't you? And uh, <laughs> Oh, my God. Not even ha- close. Yeah. <laughs> you have your uh, show, Girl No More, over at the Green Room 42 on 10th Avenue coming up uh, this Wednesday. So tell us about that. Well, the whole purpose and um, point of me having these concerts, it's really to um, – I guess I'll start saying uh, with this. When you work in theater sometimes – with press and with the roles you play, people kind of associate you to be someone that you're not. And um, I don't know about you, but I don't let age define who I am. And I'm a kind of no BS kind of person. Um, And that kind of 
gives me some kind of an identity crisis when people assume that I'm a certain way. And when um, when people meet me and they're almost uh, shocked <laughs> that I'm not Kim in Saigon in real life. Uh, mm. And to me, to me, that's just silly. That's a silly assumption people make. And it's a silly assumption people make that once you're on Broadway, you know, you, your, your slate's um, wiped clean of um, anxiety and, and, and mental illnesses and disorders and um, um, insecurities. And the whole point of the concert is to have a nice, casual, relaxed, chill evening of good music and good conversation about how, no, um, I'm not, uh, a young naive girl. Um, this is who I am. This is what I've struggled with. And let's talk about it because this industry refuses to talk about link. It refuses to link Broadway stars with anything negative sometimes, unless it's like Broadway drama. <laughs> and to me, that's just unacceptable. People need to talk about things. People need to remember that Broadway stars are freaking people and they're not flawless. They're not perfect. Um, so that, that to me, it's just important for people to understand that. So uh, you have this uh, Girl No More concert coming up. Uh, and what kind of material are you going to cover in it? I've got some Amy Winehouse. I've got a Diva medley that I've made. Um, that's like seven minutes long. <laughs> and I've got um, some pop and some, some um, yeah, some jazz. And it's just kind of a mixture of all my, my favorite material that I love singing that I never get a chance to. So it's gonna it's really special. Um, everyone should should pop on down and see what's going on. Who's the music director? What kind of band do you have? I it's just me and the piano. It's me and my lovely pianist Rodney Bush. Uh, wanted to start off simple as this is my first kind of residency anywhere, my first solo uh-huh. cabaret. So it's an it's a really chill, um, intimate evening. Definitely. Yeah. Um- now, um, a lot of kids who do high school theater love doing high school theater and have no intention of going beyond high school theater. Was this your case, or did you say, I wanted to do this for a living, even when you were in oh, high school? Yeah. Uh-huh. Well, I wanted to do this since I was a child. My, mm-hmm. my, I always make this joke that I was singing and performing since I was a fetus. Because mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. my, mom, my, mom <laughs> my mom always told me, like, you would never shut up. Um, so you're going to do something on stage. Um, but I always wanted to do this. I actually at first wanted to be an opera singer because I fell in love with Sansa of the Opera and then realized, wait a second, Sansa of the Opera is a, what's a musical? <laughs> and then, of course, I fell in love. <laughs> mm-hmm. I fell in love with um, with performing in musical theater. So so you uh, also, when you were up in the West End, did a production of Les Miserables. Um, uh, what do you have next up? Are you, uh, are you looking to do something smaller or are you, what's kind of in the plans for you right now? We're just taking a break. Um, Oh, I'm actually going to be a butthole and say, I can't say, okay. I can't uh, say what's, what's, what's next. Uh-huh. That's a great um, thing. That's awesome. We understand. It, yeah. <laughs> it, it is very exciting. Um, however, I'm going to, I have a little bit of time, um, I'm going to Germany to visit my husband and to do some solo gigs in London and Scotland. So I've got a little bit of time to rest because, you know, with this role, um, one week of vacation isn't enough. Sometimes you just got to go away for a month or two <laughs> and just kind of get away. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I'm on the first flight out. <laughs> you said your husband's Germany? Yes, he's doing a tour called the 12 Tenors. So I'm going to go. Go watch him sing Nessun Dorma with 12 men on stage. It's going to be incredible. Wow. 12 tenors. That's a lot yeah. of mirrors backstage. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> <Absolutely>. <laughs> no, he's, he's loving it. I can't wait to see it. And, you know, it's, for me, I love, a, I love a good 
you know, harmony thing going on. Yeah. So I'm sure that oh, that's awesome. hits the mark. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm excited to get away. <laughs> uh, Peter, I cut you off. Did you have something you were going to say? Well, let me say this. Um, I've seen Miss Saigon a lot of times, and one of the issues I've always had with Miss Saigon is that jump that happens when suddenly we're many years in the future and we we see the wife for the first time. And I always think, wow, you know, I wish that they would put a projection on the back wall saying the time has passed and we're now in a different year. But you are the only one, Ava, you are the only one I have ever seen who has been able to convince me just from your demeanor that time has passed. And it was really magical to see. I saw you in London first. Uh, and mm-hmm. that that is so skillful of you to be able to let me know that time has passed just from the way that you are playing the scene. So you have been the most successful of the eight, nine, ten Kims I've seen. So congratulations oh, on wow. that. Thank you so much. It's so kind of you. It's definitely, it, it's it's nice to be playing with different Ellens as well. I mean, and I'm sure you guys know the songs have changed. They still are changing. Mm-hmm. Oh, really? <laughs> um, but that's, that's yeah, well, I mean, I remember here when we were um, doing, I think, Sits Probe, we had Claude Michel and, and, and Alan in uh, changing lyrics, changing the little conversation we have in the beginning uh, in the hotel scene. Um it, yeah, it's it's always changing. I think I think because they know that's a tricky role. That's such a tricky scene. Um, mm-hmm. And you're not actually the first person to mention the time difference. Um, well, I mean, we could also. I mean, if there is a chapter of the book, we could also write a chapter of the difficulties of doing Saigon today. Um, sure. But I really appreciate that. That's, that's very kind of you to say. So, Eva, thank you so much for joining us on Broadway Radio uh, on a Sunday morning. I, I'm sure that you know you've got a million things to do, as well as uh, Miss Saigon, which is uh, wrapping up on January 14th. You have your show, Girl No More, at the Green Room 42 on 10th Avenue on uh, Wednesday, December 13th, and uh, I'm sure that you're catching up with a lot of friends and family this holiday season too. So thank you so much. And uh, after your new project gets announced, please come back and talk with us again. Oh, yes. Please have me again. You guys were absolutely lovely. What an amazing way to wake up. Seriously. Thank you for (laughs) asking me fun questions. And it was lovely. Thank you so much. Dreams were all I ever knew. Dreams you won't need when I'm through. Anywhere we may be. So all three of us got down to the Circle in the Square Theater to see Once on this Island, the first revival of the uh, this little musical. Peter, why don't you tell us about what you thought about it? Well, I adore this show, and I have since day one uh, when I started to Playwrights Horizons bef- long before it moved to Broadway. And uh, seeing it on Broadway was an extra treat as well. And since then, I've seen it about five or six times, I'm happy to say, and I'm always glad to uh, see it partly because it has a magnificent score, one of the great debut scores of all time, done by Steve Flaherty, the composer, and Lynn Ahrens, the lyricist, and for that matter, Lynn Ahrens, the book writer as well. It's an enchanting tale. It uh, has often been compared to The Little Mermaid uh, because it does involve a woman who, a young woman who does fall in love with someone uh, who is, in this case, above her station, and um, it doesn't work out nearly as well as she expects it to, 
especially because she really gives the relationship her all, and she really does believe that something wonderful is going to happen, but he's very high-born and light-skinned, especially in this production, extraordinarily light-skinned, and uh, she is uh, dark-skinned, and in the French Antilles, where it takes place, well, I'm afraid that makes a big difference. So, um, however, the, the family with the money, uh, the Boarms, uh, have not um, had luck in their lives, and they're not going to have much uh, here either. But um, anyway, so I was looking forward to this, and I was counting the days like a kid till Christmas, and I know it got rave reviews from most everyone, but I'm afraid that there were things about it that I did not like, you know, especially in Michael Arden's direction. Uh, for one thing, I, I do feel that the uh, girl playing to Moon. Haley Kilgore in her Broadway debut is a little too American Idol-y uh, in the way she sings Waiting for Life to Begin, especially at the end, where she uses a melisma we've heard a million times. And that is um, not very French Antilles to me. So that was an extraordinarily big problem for me, and I got worried early on that this was going to be one of those um, American Idol-y type nights. And mm -hmm. it didn't turn out um, to be... Uh, an error on my part, but I think it was an error on their part. Um, and that happened, too, with uh, Mama Can uh, Provide, a wonderful song that um, Alex Newell uh, sang. And the thing is, it was a very African-American interpretation rather than uh, a French Antilles interpretation. Mm. So that was a problem for me. Um, the other thing, too, um, is that um, – Haley Kilgore is playing uh, to Moon in a much more feisty and angry way than Lachance did so wonderfully way back when. And um, she's she's much more contentious with her parents um, as opposed to to, um, to Lachance, who is very deferential and seemed to care more. This girl wants what she wants under any circumstances, and I find that a rather American interpretation too. She doesn't seem to be a girl from that part of the world who, um, who uh, she doesn't seem as grateful to her parents. I mean, she's single-minded, and in most heroines that is certainly a value and an asset, but in this case, for a peasant girl living uh, down there, it just seemed incongruous to me that this was uh, the type of girl who grew up in the French Antilles. So um, so I thought it was pretty wrong-headed. One of the most painful things in the play is the fact that um, when she falls in love with the boy and he eventually abandons her to marry the woman that he's been promised to since day one, it's that type of society, that um, the, um, the custom in the French Antilles is that when you get married, one of you high-born people get married, you throw coins to the peasants uh, mm. on your wedding day. And I, so I could take you to the stage of the Booth Theater now, and if Playwrights Horizons was the same space that it was then, I could take you exactly to within a quarter inch of that stage where indeed Jerry Dixon gave LeShans the money. And it was such a clean moment um, it, it, that you really – it broke your heart that here he was and he was treating her just like another peasant girl and he didn't know what to do and this is the best he could do and he felt bad because he really did love Tamoon. Um, he really was grateful to her for saving his life, which she did. And um, But here, I, I, I would say that a lot of the audience didn't even see him giving the coin to her. Now, some of that has to do with the fact that Circle in the Square, which I really don't feel is the ideal venue for this show. I will grant you um, very easily and readily that um, the scenic design by Dane Laffrey certainly uh, is much more French Antilles-like than we saw in, at the Booth Theater. There's a lot of sand. Um, it looks very rustic and all that. But um, the moment where he gives her the coin, I bet at least, 
at least 70% of the audience didn't see that happening, and that's such an important moment. So on the other hand, if you've never seen Once on this Island and you don't have any basis for comparison, um, you should hear the score. And what's really quite nice about the score is that um, it has been reorchestrated. So um, Haley Bennett and um, Javier Diaz have uh, done some orchestration to uh, augment what Michael Starobin originally did, and so did Emery Milasso. And uh, so they've gone with more um, traditional-type instruments for the Prince Antilles, and that's fine, too. And Broadway Records, God love them, is going to do a cast album, and um, I'm sure that there will be some charms in hearing those orchestrations over and over again, because that's what they've done. They haven't gone for conventional instruments here. They've gone for sounds of uh, more authentic instruments and even <laughs> things that aren't instruments that are being employed as instruments, and that's really quite terrific. I, I hate to be so negative because it's such a wonderful show, and m- many of the things that's bothered me may not bother you, and that's fine. And I, uh, as always, I'd much rather you have a good time than agree with me. But frankly, I was really disappointed uh, that this didn't turn out to be a more authentic Once in the Island as much as I wanted it to be. Michael, what did you think? Well, I do agree with you about the characterization of Timun from Haley Kilgore. I did feel that uh, pretty much similar to what you said, that she seemed like a, a little bit too much like an em- empowered modern-day American woman. I thought she was somewhat lacking in uh, vulnerability, especially at the beginning. Uh, mm. I mean, towards the end, things that happened that, sure. uh, you know, there's no way that, uh, yeah, yeah, that yeah. she can remain empowered. Um, but I, I guess uh, I, I don't agree in, in her case. If I wasn't sensitive to the American Idol thing, um, I'm happy to say, because I think I I hate that as much as you do. Uh, and in fact, I uh, maybe we get we'll get to it later. I, I uh, thought there was a particularly egregious example of it in SpongeBob SquarePants. It, it just infuriated me. But um, I, for whatever reason, I wasn't uh, sensitive to it here. I think overall, this is a, a almost perfect production of one of my favorite shows and scores as well. I have loved this score. From the beginning, I uh, uh, there was a very long period of time when I would say it was my most played cast album. I think Flaherty and Aaron's, yeah, no, absolutely. I think Flaherty and Aaron's did a magnificent job. I think it's um, one of their most inspired scores, right up there with Ragtime. And I uh, personally, um, to me, it's vastly superior to, for example, Anastasia. I think um, just. Uh, maybe the the fact that they were working in a specific style here, trying to to a certain extent uh, ape or recreate uh, the music of the, the Antilles, that that gives it a co- cohesiveness that <laughs> for something like Anastasia doesn't have. Uh, but aside from that, the melodies and the lyrics are just so beautiful. I um, uh, was was struck again by the Little Mermaid aspects of the story. It's interesting. One of the, um, I think it was the Times Review, uh, didn't mention the Little Mermaid at all and compared this more to a Romeo and Juliet uh, type of story, which there are some mm-hmm. elements of that, but I think it's far more mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Little Mermaid. And in fact, if you um, go back and read the original 
story version of the Little Mermaid, the Hans Christian Andersen one, it, it seems even more. Uh, it's even even closer to that than, for example, the the famous uh, Disney animated film. But I love this production at Circle in the Square overall. I think it's maybe the best use of the space ever. I'm sorry you felt um, that way, Peter. I guess partly it depends on where one is sitting. Although I would say I I did not uh, by any means have the best seat for it. I was in the second row. Uh, on one of the sides, and I think it's better to be back a little bit to take the whole thing in. I um, I'm not sure why you think uh, that many people would have missed the bit with the coin, uh, considering how it was staged. I, I, I mean, of course, I can't say, but it, it seemed to me that it was. Uh, that it would not have been missed by a lot of people. Um, I love the the sand. I love the uh, the pre-show. Uh, you should get there a little early if you if you can. Um, the cast are walking around there. It's like uh, it, the conceit of this production is that um, it's modern day and it's these survivors and aid workers and and people like that who have um, who are walking around in the wake of a of a modern day hurricane and then they uh they tell this story of of once on this island which does begin pretty much begins with a hurricane uh, also so i think that was this really clever and the way they use props and uh is extremely creative i think michael arden did a wonderful wonderful job um the cast is uh, overall superb uh, as i said to a friend when you have <laughs> uh people like philip boykin and quentin earl darrington uh in featured roles uh, you know these are two of the greatest voices that we've ever heard on broadway and and uh, i think that the rest of the cast is pretty much up to that level it's really something uh, i um i was very impressed with Isaac Powell, who played Daniel, who I believe is very, very young. This is a wonderful opportunity for him. And the fact that he looked so young, um, and also uh, that's also the case with Timu and Haley Kilgore. I think their their youth, their extreme youth really added to the story as well. But um, everyone else in the show is is just great. I uh, I hope it's a tremendous hit because – it, it is one of my favorite shows of all time, and and having seen other, uh, you know, some new musicals lately that uh, I had problems with, I I just, uh, I mean, I don't want to live my life on revivals, <laughs> but but um, if they are going to continue to happen, I hope that all of them are as wonderfully beautifully well done as this one is. I'm very glad that you mentioned Philip Boykin and uh, Kanita R. Miller playing the parents and uh, such sensitivity in both of them. Um, <clears throat> I will admit that they have musical theater's most um, intense guilt trip song of all time in which they <laughs> encourage Timon to stay where she is. And uh, it's a beautiful song, though, but they are terrific beyond belief in playing the sensitivity of the parents who know that they cannot keep the girl um, in the way that they want to keep her at home. And um, how many parents have, have learned that the hard way, too? So that really is terrific. <clears throat> but, you know, once again, I will tell you that when I first saw this show, I remember hearing the score for the first time. 
I remember the analogy in my head was, you know, when you go to um, a dinner and they keep on feeding you food and eventually you say, oh, no, 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 no I've had enough. No, 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 please. I can't take another one. It was <laughs> almost that way with me. I, I thought I cannot take another beautiful melody. Th- these songs are so magnificent. Oh, my <laughs> God. You know, I, oh, please, I, I've got to stop for a second. I, ca- I can't take another beautiful one. I know that sounds bizarre beyond belief, but I mean, it really affected me that way because one after the other after the other were so terrific. It's amazing to me that Steve Flaherty could get this uh, Caribbean sound in, mm. in his. Uh, you would really think that he grew up there. And you know, I'm, I'm, if somebody from one of those islands came and said, "Oh no, 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 it's Erzats, it's Broadway, it has nothing to do with," all right, fine. But it certainly sounds right to me. And um, and I'm just very glad that uh, I was reminded of how wonderful a score it is. So again, you know, um, I, I I hope that uh, most of you go and uh, feel the way Michael does so uh, that would be wonderful i completely agree uh, for what it's worth i have a friend who loves ragtime and cannot stand once on this island How but funny. i guess he you know he doesn't like that type of music uh, in that style that's that's my only explanation for it but boy you know what makes the world go round? <laughs> well, you know, it reminds me of the difference um, between Ilya Darling, uh, a 1966 musical, a Greek musical written by a Greek, Manos Hadjadakis, who had written the theme song for Never on Sunday, which is what Ilya Darling was. And uh, then a couple of years later, John Candy wrote the score for Zorba. And so many people said, you know, the Zorba sounds more uh, distinctively <laughs> than the, the Greek score um, written by the actual Greek. And similarly speaking, um, way back when there was a show called Ballad for Bimshir, uh, which was written by uh, a real uh, native of this part of the world. Um, and uh, it, it doesn't sound as authentic to me, which doesn't, you know, doesn't mean a damn thing, because I mean, it's not like I'm an expert in this music, but somehow the Steve Flaherty music sounds more uh, right for the Caribbean than indeed uh, the Ballad for Bimshir score does. So uh, go figure. What can I I tell you. You know, one thing, uh, other thing I really must mention with Once on This Island is the sound design of Peter Helensky because I thought it was superb in every way. I, first of all, it, it is not over amplified, which I would say 99% of <laughs> Broadway musicals that I see nowadays are. But aside from that, um, it was very, very natural and very directional. Uh, it, it, you know, the, the setup of Circle in the Square, it's 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 very uh, – there are going to be things happening way to your left and way to your right and then directly in front of you. And rather than a, a proscenium setup where everything is coming from more or less the same direction. And uh, if the sound weren't directional, I, I think it would sound really fake and synthetic. But he – I mean, there are speakers all over the place, and when something happens way to your left, that's where it sounds like it's coming from. Uh, but it can't be easy to do that, <laughs> um, in you know, in a space like that. So, really, bravo to him. I I think it's one of the best sound designs I've ever heard. Michael, I went to a backers audition the other day in a room, and it was amplified with cheek mics. I mean, oh, so in a room, you know. I mean, so uh, it's everywhere. Yeah. Well. So before we get off of Once on This Island, I just wanted to throw in that uh, I also saw it, and I I really enjoyed it. It's one of my favorite shows, um, and the. Uh, 
one of the things I came out of it with, which is going to come up again later this episode, is that I really can't wait for the cast recording. And uh, Broadway Records has uh, announced that they are going to be releasing Once on this Island, uh, the revival cast recording. So uh, this is definitely going to get a lot of uh, a lot of plays on my iPhone. Um, it's their hundredth uh, album. Yeah, that's uh, what's Broadway Records. It. It's the yeah. hundredth. Suddenly a hundred. Isn't that incredible? Isn't yes. that wonderful? God really. bless Van Dien. Van Dien. I mean, he has done such amazing work. So we're very grateful to him, to say that's- the least. Absolutely. Just absolutely incredible that uh, Broadway Records has I, – I was very, in a very small way in the Broadway uh, recording space many years ago, and I just could not make it work. And for Van Dien and for the other labels that are out there, uh, you know, the Shikabooms and the Masterworks Broadways and uh, et cetera, et cetera, PS Classics, to continue to put out stuff – uh, my hat's off to all of them. That's really mm. incredible. Well, I'm pretty sure this new Once on this Island will be uh, a new uh, one of my most played <laughs> cast albums as the original was for all those years. There's also a London cast album that I've never heard oh, of. Oh, yeah. I haven't either, in fact. Did yeah. they, uh, did, uh, when you went to Once on this Island, did they cook on stage before the show? Um, I, you know, I didn't notice it, but I, I think it was not maybe it was not near where I was sitting. It was uh, right in front of me. They were they had a hot plate and they were cooking onions and peppers and various vegetables and things like that and it smelled so good and I really uh-huh. was like, Where where were they gonna where are they gonna use this in the show? And they never did. Well, uh, <laughs> well, but uh, but as I said, there is the pre-show with uh, people yeah. walking around and and mm-hmm. it's to a certain degree interacting with the audience. And at one point, Leah Salonga zeroed in on my friend. I'm not sure why, but she came over to him and looked him right in the eye and said, "I've got my eye on you." <laughs> so he was quite thrilled. <laughs> Ironic. Uh, we we didn't mention in our talk with uh, yeah, even Olivia that Leia Salongas uh, here as well. Right. Mm. All right. Uh, maybe they should do something at Green Room Forty Two together. The two of them. Mm-hmm. That'd be fun. All right. Uh, Michael and I got a chance to see SpongeBob SquarePants over at the Palace Theater. So, um, Michael, why don't I start off with this one and uh, tell right. tell me. Uh, jump in when you hear me say something really stupid. So, <laughs> <laughs> give me at least 10 seconds. So, <laughs> so I, I have to admit, first of all, I'll put, put the caveat out there that a very good friend of mine is the executive producer of SpongeBob SquarePants, and she has been working on this for uh, more than 10 years or so, uh, bringing this to Broadway. And and every time I heard it, I said, "Wow, this this is this is a this is a really bad idea." Um, and she's a good, you know, she's a friend, and you you want to be supportive of your friends. But um, I went into SpongeBob SquarePants not knowing what I was going to see, but knowing that um, knowing that I was thinking to myself, "This could be a real big train wreck." And I really, I came out really enjoying it. Uh, I I loved. Uh, the energy of it. I love the choreography. I love the the, the design. I love the cast. This um, this uh, this mix of many many different artists writing the songs. I thought was going to be a very big problem in in pulling it together as a, a a seamless through line. But I it seems that they have done a very good job putting this putting this together. There are uh, 
I was very surprised by the great review in the New York Times it got, and I was very surprised at the the great review it got in the New Yorker. Uh, and so I went in there, and I was a convert coming out, and um, it's one of the shows that we're buying tickets to as presents for uh, uh, some friends and family as well. Um, so, Michael, did you uh, did you have the same sort of experience that I did? Go, you know, going in thinking it was a train wreck, and how did you come out of it? Um, I wasn't sure if I thought it would be a train wreck, but I uh, I recognized that I was not the target audience for this show uh, in several ways, including the fact that I had never seen a, a, a minute of the. TV show or or either of the two movies. And by the way, I read up a, a little. I did do some research before I went because uh, uh, I thought I should have some basic knowledge of the characters and, and the phenomenon. Do you know that the media franchise, uh, as mm, it's yeah. phrased, in the, um, has generated $13 billion in merchandising? Yeah. That's... which is a staggering figure. And, uh, you know, in a way, I think maybe the impetus for this show was not the best because I would think that, uh, you know, it's it's hard to really say something like this, but I suppose that the that more money was the main impetus. But I have to say um, that in I, I liked it far more than I had thought I would, especially in terms of the songs. Uh, I, I think the songs, uh, which are by a myriad of pop and, and I guess rock writers, uh, I, 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 it didn't seem, it does not seem the hodgepodge that I really thought it might. And I think a lot of credit for that must go to Tom Kitt, uh, who's the music supervisor, orchestrator, and arranger. Uh, he, he helps, I would, I would think in making it sound like the songs do go together and that there is sort of a cohesiveness to the score and uh, that it's not a hodgepodge. I can think of, of scores uh, that were written by uh, one person or, 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 or a team, one team that uh, that sound like more of a hodgepodge than this one. So that I think is a huge plus. Um, I wrote down uh, some of my favorite songs. One is called BFF. Uh, this is a, a song sung by SpongeBob, played by Ethan Slater and his, I guess, his best buddy, uh, Patrick Starr, the starfish, uh, played by Danny Skinner. Uh, that one I really liked. Um, and that is by Plain White Tees. There's a song called Hero Is My Middle Name by Cindy Lauper and Rob Hyman, uh, Broadway veteran Cindy Lauper, I, I should say. Um, there's a, a lovely song called I Guess I Miss You by John Legend. And then there's a big, um, delightful tap number in Act Two. It becomes a tap number called I'm Not a Loser, performed um, by Gavin Lee and company. Uh, Gavin Lee as Squidward. And that song is by They Might Be Giants. So those um, were my uh, some of my favorites. Uh, and, you know, I, I think that's going to, the score alone is going to make people happy uh it seemed like a great many people around me were very familiar with the characters and uh story elements from the from the tv series and or the movies and uh some of the characters uh in this bikini bottom 
universe uh, you know, include, uh, well, the SpongeBob himself, of course, is a, a sea sponge. Then we have the snail, we have the squid or octopus, uh, the crab and the starfish. And then there's a squirrel. <laughs> uh, which you know it's it's kind of hard to explain if you don't if you don't know the uh the the genre here i i do think um and you 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 both may laugh at me but i, I thought uh, i think there's uh i had a problem with the fact that the internal logic uh of of this story doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense i mean I, i'm sure a lot of people would say well you know they're you know obviously they 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 these creatures can't talk to begin with, nor, nor can they sing, uh, you know, nor can they dance. So, so it's so, uh, it's so unreal to begin with that you don't need internal logic, but I, I, I I don't agree with that. I think there are some things that, uh, in it that don't really make a lot of sense. Uh, At one point, um, uh, all right, so, uh, Bikini Bottom is threatened by this volcano that apparently is going to be erupting and, and there's panic among the citizens and they're all told to stay inside whatever. So first of all, what does inside mean (laughs) in that world? And, um, and then, uh, Patrick, uh, is upset because he says something like, well, I have to stay in and I, and I can't watch TV. Um, so, I mean, aside from the fact of not being able to watch TV, uh, you know, under the water, where would he be watching TV outside, not inside? So that didn't make much sense to me. And then in act two, there's a point where they're all staring at the, uh, you know, they're all gazing at the sun supposedly. And I don't know how they can do that if they're at the bottom of the ocean. So I don't, I don't get a lot of that stuff, but I, I, I'm sure that, that the fact that I even bring all of this up is ridiculous to to uh, most fans of the of the piece and the genre and the the story and uh, so uh, you can just completely discount everything I just said if you wish. Um, the night I saw the show, Friday, December eighth, was the night that Ethan Slater playing SpongeBob he was injured somewhat. Uh, I think it must have happened towards the end when he was climbing. Um, he needs to climb this this set yeah. piece that, to represent the, the volcano. Um, and I think it must have happened then because in the following number, I didn't notice it at first, but um, actually I attended the show with Ron Fassler, our, our uh, mutual friend and colleague. And he said, um, he, he at one point he turned to me and he said, he, he he hurt himself. He's bleeding. And then I noticed that he had um, – that Ethan had uh, a handkerchief. Someone had handed him a handkerchief and uh, to soak up the blood um, on his hand. But he finished the number like a trooper and he, you know, he did all, all of the choreography. And uh, I hope um, – you know, I assume that right after the number, he went off stage and they dealt with it. And I hope he didn't have to miss a performance or anything. Um, so what a trooper he is, though. And uh, I was also um, happy to see uh, – there were, there were some people in the show that are new to me. But then there are uh, you know, some old favorites that I was really happy to see in this – what looks like it's going to be a huge hit. Um, Lily Cooper is Sandy Cheeks. And, and I thought she was just delightful. Sandy Cheeks is the squirrel. I thought – um, she brought a lot of heart to it, and it's been so wonderful to me to watch her grow up. I think uh, I think maybe her Spring Awakening was her first show, or one, certainly one of her first. And she was very, very young then, but she's matured beautifully and become a wonderful singer and actress. Um, also in the show are uh, some of my 
other favorites, Gavin Lee as Squidward, as I mentioned, uh, Wesley Taylor as Eugene Krabs, John Rua as Patchy the Pirate, Curtis Holbrook as the leader of the Electric Skates. Uh, so it's really nice to see people like that uh, there. Uh, there was, as I mentioned earlier, a, a, a very, very egregious American Idol moment um, in Act One uh, by one of the singers. And uh, of course, she was just doing what she was told to, but she held the note. And just like Pavlov's dogs, everyone around me started screaming and wooing and i i uh, to me uh, it's just so dishonest i i can't say how much i hate that because it it's it's not about uh, you know anyone can do it uh, or almost anyone can do it and and you know, it's just holding a note and you're going to get that response and i i you know we we had mentioned recently that it's in the current production of Annie at Paper Mill Playhouse, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. really doesn't belong at all. So um, I wish that would stop, but it doesn't look like it's going to anytime yeah, soon. Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, but I, um, I, I overall, I, I enjoyed the show a lot more than I thought. I do think it was horrendously overamplified. I also think it's overstuffed in terms of. Um, Oh, it's it seems like it's maybe aimed at people with ADD. There's always there's so much happening at once and there are so many props and plot elements and things like that. But some of some of the stuff is delightful. There are these two um, on either side of the proscenium arch. There are these two huge Rube Goldberg like devices that go off um, at very at uh, at two points during the show. And that was a really a lot of fun, I thought. Um uh, I, I do think it's a little relentless, uh, to me, the show overall, but I guess it's aimed, um, largely at ch- children, uh, and their parents. So I, I think that that's what they wanted, uh, and that's what they got. Um, by the way, the, uh, Tina Lando is the overall director of the show and Christopher Gatelli does some really, really fun choreography, which again, I, I think is exactly the kind of thing that the audience wants to see. Um, so I guess, um, I guess it's a hit. And, and if nothing else, if this show <laughs> prevents, uh, that idiotic idea of the palace theater being raised up, uh, off of the street, the entire theater being raised up, um, then I'm happy that it's there, and I hope it has a. <laughs> I hope it runs for 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> so you have to. Uh, the top line producer for SpongeBob SquarePants is Nickelodeon, um, and certainly Nickelodeon is only geared towards children, uh, and this is where they make their money. And so I agree with you. It's it's really geared towards children and their parents, but parents don't have to shy away from it because it, I I felt as though that it was a, a story that's happening on two levels. That mm. sort of like a Bugs Bunny story, a Bugs Bunny cartoon, where you have the the children's uh, the the children's story going on with the adult story also happening at the same time transparently, so that. Uh, there, uh, it was sort of a morality play of um, of uh, shunning an outsider, and uh, you know what's happening these days with uh, immigrants, and think uh, you know there's a lot of parallels that happened there. Certainly, we're not getting as deep as um, other shows would get into it, um, but uh, I, I felt that 
parents don't have to regret taking their kids to this. There's something for them too, and I think it's definitely not a not a show that you know a uh, a full on theater uh, theater fan should go to see if um, unless they're being a completist and want to see the entire season. So um, yeah, and yeah, they do try to uh, like all good. properties that are aimed at both children and adults they do you know there there is there is stuff material there for adults there, there's climate change and as you mentioned uh, uh, uh prejudice racism uh that they you know they cover these points and to to, to give some some depth to the story it's not all just silliness and and people working together uh to avert a crisis um so yeah and also you know i I really only mention ethan slater in uh, in terms of his injury but i don't want to slight him he he gives a really wonderful endearing superb performance and i think uh that the audience really seemed to adore him i'm glad you said the word properties uh michael because (laughs) Can you imagine what the props crew has to do on this show? Yeah, there's a lot I mean, of props too. <laughs> just props and the cleanup of the theater at the very end. It's just um it was a bit a little bit theme park at the, at the very end, but uh but certainly uh the the top of the show props preset list must be 10 pages long, you know. <laughs> It's oh gosh! Yes, enormous amount of enormous amount of work uh, going on there, and the last thing I'll say about it is the the uh, thing where Ethan climbs at the very end. I was thinking about the Raoul climbing Phantom set at the end of Phantom of the Opera. You know what I mean? The, yes, when he climbs the bars and things like that. It, it was very reminiscent of that, and I think that a number of Raouls have probably been hurt doing that as well. <laughs> So, Peter, you got over to uh, Workshop Theater on 36th Street to see a Terrence McNally play, Where Has Tommy Flowers Gone? So uh, why don't you tell us about that? Well, as I always say to people who are coming from out of town, uh, a good experience would be to see a Broadway show, sure. But see an off-Broadway show, too, and an off-off-Broadway show, so you can get the idea of what theater is really like in New York, the different uh, demarcations. And for that matter, you'll save a little bit of money if you go off-Broadway and off, especially off-off-Broadway. So um, what a wonderful chance to see a 1971 play by Terrence McNally. It wasn't successful when it was first done, but what's really impressive is to see where Terrence McNally was in his career then. Now, he'd already had a hit. He had, had a hit with a play called Next, which was a double part of a double bill <clears throat> with an Elaine May play called Adaptation. And that was really running, and um, I, I bet it was still running in 1971. I think it opened in 69. But uh, here he was doing a play, and it's really interesting to see it because, frankly, it's uh, it, you see the evolution of Terrence McNally becoming a, a different playwright uh, and – also, you see him as if – well, let's put it this way. If you were to see a picture of him how, uh, at that age, that's sort of what this is like. It's sort of a snapshot of what he was like back then. So the play is a little undisciplined, and I'm not saying it's a great play at all. However, it is – if you're interested in Terrence McNally, this is a must-see because you do see him making some 
mistakes as a playwright, and you also see him having a younger man's values than uh, than he turned out to have, as we all do. We all age. We all grow. Um, we hope we grow. But anyway, so while this is an imperfect play, it's kind of interesting to see it uh, under those circumstances. Okay, so what's it about? It's about a guy named Tommy Flowers who comes to New York um, from Florida. He he's moved here, and this, of course, is the seventies. The play was in Time Now when it was first on, and so it's a look at Forty Second Street during the time when we didn't want to look at Forty Second Street. So he goes there and he has a lot of adventures, and uh, he he hooks up with women. Um, some he is more successful with than others, but. Uh, it is a case of a Holden Caulfield-like character. That's who Tommy Flowers is, and he mentions Holden Caulfield specifically. He has the most difficult opening monologue. It is astonishing. He just goes through a litany of what his life has been thus far, and he does it in terms of uh, cultural references. So he talks about the Lone Ranger. He talks about Uncle Milty. He talks about cream of wheat. Uh, my point is, there is no rhyme or reason to the way he lists these things, um, and there must be four dozen of them, maybe five dozen. I, I can't be off by too much, I guarantee you. And for an actor to memorize this, I would think would be so so difficult but um he does it um the the uh gentleman who's playing the part his name is david gow i guess it's pronounced that way g-o-w uh he produced the show too because it's a showcase for him he knew a good part when he saw it and it is a very good part so um one of the problems of the play is the fact that um, 1971 was a far more uh, sedate time in this city. So there's a lot of talk about New York being bombed. And I'm sorry to say that Tommy Flowers is one who talks a lot about bombing the city. Um, those lines are supposed to be funny. They're not anymore, needless to say. So um, when that really wasn't a threat, I guess we could uh, afford to laugh at it, but certainly not anymore. So um, he, he needs so many different people, even an, uh, an actor uh, who claims that he acted with James O'Neill in The Count of Monte Cristo. So that's kind of funny and interesting as well. So um, it is insensitive in the way that it handles the, the disabled. There's a scene that's really um, pretty um, icky to sit through under those circumstances but uh but it's 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 picaresque i mean he goes from one adventure to another the problem is eventually uh you don't like the guy um he does turn out to have uh, so many problems and the way he deals with people so uh and it uh, it really turns out to have a, a very, very uh, difficult ending, uh, very hard to sit through, especially now. But uh, the fascination of it is seeing where Terrence McNally was at that time and the period piece elements. I mean, I haven't thought of the word cyclamates in a long time. And if you don't know what that was, I understand. And I mean, was, I don't, I don't think we have them anymore, but, um, but anyway, if that rings a bell with you, you're going to uh, certainly enjoy the period piece aspects of uh, where has Tommy Flowers gone. <clears throat> what I will uh, also say uh, it, it is that it is very, very well done. And I was especially taken with a young actress who plays um, his girlfriend. Netta Lemon is the character name, and her name is Emma Gear, And she is just enchanting with a wonderful smile and a wonderful demeanor, and you really care about her. Uh, and when she comes out with the line, 
why does everything have to be guerrilla warfare with you? You have to nod your head and say, yeah, that's who Tommy Flowers is. So, um, so again, a problematic play, but certainly worth seeing, especially for this young cast that gives it its all. I uh, really, I have to mention Noel Frankel, Emily Kitchens, Al Fallick. Daniel O'Shea and Sam Garber, they were all wonderful, 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 and um, God love them all, and I hope that they go on to terrific careers. All right, so uh, that is Where Has Tommy Flowers Gone? I'll have a link to that in the show notes, so perhaps you can catch up with that, uh, get more information about it. Michael, you and I got over to see The Parisian Woman, which uh, Peter talked about last week. Um, Let me start off there by saying that... uh, uh, Michael, do you wa- have you watched uh, House of Cards? No, I have not. So my take on this, uh, the Parisian woman, is is sort of like it's very similar in feeling to me about uh, you know Bo Willimon, who wrote the Parisian Woman, his uh, House of Cards television show on HBO, uh, and, and I was sort of like, oh, I, I was disappointed that. It um, it basically followed the same sort of parlor games of Washington D.C. of uh, sexual intrigue and politics and trading favors, starring Uma Thurman, Josh Lucas, uh, Philippa Sue, Blair Brown, Martin uh, Zokas. Um, this um, this play uh, basically happens in in. Uh, Uma Thurman's uh, character's apartment and added a uh, other Washington parties and things like that. Uh, and it's about who's sleeping with who and open relationships and don't tell me this and don't tell me that, which is very similar to House of Cards. Uh, and so I figured that this was nothing more than trying to replicate the success of House of Cards on stage using uh Uma Thurman as her chance to get uh, onto onto a Broadway stage and perhaps um, get a nomination. So what did you think about this show directed by Pam McKinnon? Well, I am not familiar with House of Cards, but I am a great admirer of the play Farragut North uh, that Bo Willimon wrote some years ago. And I, you know, I, I, I want to be careful. I can't believe that the same person wrote this play because I thought it, I, I just didn't get it. I thought it was ridiculous. I thought almost everything that happened on stage was completely unbelievable to the point where I was wondering if it was supposed to be maybe a parody or a farce or, 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 or some kind of the whole thing was supposed to be a big joke. Um, this, uh, uh, apparently is based very loosely on an 1885 French play called La Parisienne. But I think it's mostly in terms of the title, uh, which would be translated as the Parisian woman. And even the title, <laughs> doesn't it seem to you that the title is completely inappropriate for, for this play? Uh, I mean, it's just if a passing uh, reference in the show, unless I misunderstood it, it's, uh, she, she does talk about this main character, Chloe, uh, played by Uma Thurman. She, she talks about this, um, time she spent in Paris and this affair she had when she was there. But 
I, I don't know. I mean, if I told you that I spent some time in Germany uh, and you wrote a play about me, would you call me the German guy, even though I've <laughs> <laughs> I've spent the rest of my life in New York? I I, I didn't get that at all. Um, and uh, apparently, by the way, there's a uh, 1957 Brigitte Bardot film called uh, uh, the well, the Parisian woman or La Parisienne, and but that. Also, uh, and that apparently is a farce, but but this play I don't think is meant to be that. What's interesting, uh, um, <laughs> what is interesting about this play is that it was done at South Coast Rep three years ago, but apparently it's been heavily, heavily revised uh, since then because three years ago was for the most part BT, as in before Trump, <laughs> uh, you know, at least uh, before he was a candidate and then very, very, very unfortunately, our president. Uh, so it seems that Bo Willimon has revised it greatly, and there are lots and lots of um, references to uh, very, very current events. Um, it'd be interesting to see the timeline on which he revised it and when he uh, actually uh, made the changes and, and how recently he stopped making uh, the changes and additions. Um, one thing that's that struck me as odd, uh, aside from the fact that the whole thing seemed completely unbelievable, was um, that uh, Trump's men name is not mentioned until the very en very end of the play, and then it's mentioned several times. But before that, um, Chloe keeps calling him the president, and someone else at one point says, "You never mention his name," and she says, "I don't want to give him that respect." But I thought even that, well, isn't that kind of the opposite? Isn't it calling him just Trump? Doesn't that uh, show less respect than calling him the president? So uh, that line was emblematic to me of a, of a lot of the rest of the play. I just didn't get it. I, I thought it was very schematic and didn't really make any sense. And I couldn't believe uh, – some of the plot turns. I, I certainly didn't predict them because I never would have predicted these plot turns because they seem so incongruous and unbelievable to me. Um, do, did you have that general feeling, James? Um, I, I did. I did have that, that feeling. And I felt that, uh, again, if Uma, Thurm if Uma Thurman didn't want to do this show, would the show have existed on a Broadway stage, you know, uh, I think that it's it's simply a, ve a vehicle because we're you know, again we ask that question we we see when the when the curtain goes down and the lights come up and we're walking out of the theater and we're thinking what did we just see and I always ask myself why why did they do this and the only reason I can come up with was that Uma Thurman wanted to do a show and this is what she picked. Yeah. By the way, I thought her performance was very creditable in terms of projecting to an audience and seeming comfortable on stage, uh, you know, with, with very little, if any, experience. Um, I did think that uh, there were – well, one of the interesting things about the character is that you eventually – you pretty soon you learn not to take anything she says <laughs> uh, at face value because she does a lot of lying. Um, but there were a couple of times – 
when I thought she was very, very obviously lying to the people she was spoke, speaking to. And that, I think, was a problem in her performance that maybe she would not have uh, – it wouldn't have been an issue if she had more experience. Uh, I, I suppose that director Pam McKinnon might have helped her a little bit more with that aspect of it. But, um, you know, I, I – I, think that people who are going to see Uma Thurman will probably not be disappointed. She looks great. And as I say, she, um, you know, she projects very well and she, she does not seem uncomfortable on stage. So in, in all of of those senses, I think that it's a very creditable Broadway debut. Uh, I have one more thing I wanted to say about this, maybe get both of your opinions on it was that, uh, the, that, sort of LED curtain that they used to transition uh-huh. scenes. Yeah. Mm. What the hell was that? It it didn't match anything else in the design. It didn't add anything to the show. It seemed to be left over from Sunday in the Park with George. I agree. You know? <laughs> I, and it, it obviously expensive, too. I mean, yeah. I don't think – whatever it cost, um, even if they got it wholesale and uh, the, the people who – owned it, delivered it right to the theater without any charge, it still seemed to be a needless expense. Yes. Um, it, was, it was fine with me to look at, but I was amazed that they spent money on it. Um, it, it, it well, <laughs> you said it. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's such a strange outlier in an otherwise uh, uh, understated and dignified set design. Uh, you know, the set was beautiful, and then you had this really strange... One of these things is not like the other type of thing. That the, yeah, there's I, a I, there's a saying? similar uh, similar kind of media wall in junk, but that yeah. uh, there it seemed to 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 fit in a lot better with that story than this one. This this really did seem completely unnecessary because you have um, se- you know you have several very traditional sets that look very very good, and I I'm, I'm not sure why that was there at all. And that one in junk, at least, was used to convey convey information. This was right. just a just, just a design. Anyway, so uh, last up in the morning, Peter, you got a chance to see Steve Martin's new uh, play, Meteor Shower. So uh, tell us about that. Well, uh, what um, it really seemed to me, I, it reminded me of a grammar school composition in a, in a way because so many kids in grammar school, when they have tried a composition, let their imagination soar, which is wonderful. Um, they don't worry about making too much sense. What they want to do is just um, free associate with this, that, and the other thing, and at the end say, and then I woke up. I'm sure grammar school teachers have run into that so many times, and their eyes have glazed over when that happened because that's the type of escape clause where you get away with anything you know, because our dream what can we do? Well, in a way, in a way, Meteor Shower does that as well. Steve Martin essentially puts something on stage that gets more and more absurd and essentially at the end says, and then I woke up. He doesn't say that. Don't misunderstand me. But there's a very similar type of thing that goes on in this play. Um, that said, uh, it's reasonably enjoyable. Um, I laughed uh, many more times than I do in both shows. So I, I did have a good time during – it's only 80 minutes – 
that's it. But uh, it does deal with a couple who um, invites another couple over to to the house, and uh, they don't know them very well. And they're going to find very quickly that they don't know them at all. And uh, this is a couple that has issues, or do they? I mean, you know, <laughs> remember, uh, you're going to find out at the end that there's something else going on here. <clears throat> but um, it's just one piece of craziness after another, because the couple that invites them over tries to be genial and nice. And uh, when they, the other couple starts fighting right in front of them, uh, well, you know, what do you do when that happens? You try to pretend that nothing's wrong and all that. So there's a lot of that going on. Okay, so the couple that uh, lives in Beowulf, Florida, it's a beautiful set, by the way. And uh, I don't know if he did the cyclorama and back either with the meteor shower that actually happens. That's why they've come over here to uh, this house because they have a very good view of the sky. Um, played by Jeremy Shamos and, and Amy Schumer. Now, Amy Schumer, um, of course, is the one who's been selling tickets to this show. People want to see her. And uh, she's not bad. However, um, she does seem to have – you can really tell she has less experience as an actress – uh, obviously, she's been on stage a lot, but as an actress, she seems just a whit behind uh, the real pros that Jeremy Shamos and, for that matter, Alar Benanti are. So, um, Jeremy Shamos is terrific, and if this were the 60s, um, he would be in every type of cactus flowery type show that uh, came along. He's very, very good at playing the husband who uh, is harried and um, nervous and uh, all that goes with that. So, Terrific, terrific performance um, under very difficult circumstances. He also gets to wear the strangest costume you have ever seen. And I don't care if you've been to the Village Halloween Parade. This costume is much stranger. And um, at that point, you really throw your hands up in the play when he comes out with his costume and saying, this can't be for real. Well, that's part of what goes on in the play. (laughs) That's where the and then I woke up uh, quotient comes into play here. So um, so it is a bit of a Disappointment. You really wanted it to be better. Uh, you want Steve Martin to work to be better. You want Amy Schumer's work to be better. Um, the other gentleman in the show, uh, who really does a very nice job, and he's a newcomer too, um, is Keegan Michael Key, playing the other husband. Um, who they all have a million issues. And Jerry Sachs is directed that uh, in the type of let's not get in the way of the play, and he keeps it moving and all that goes with that. So um, um, and and oh. Okay, night that you wish were better, but certainly not a disaster, not at all. So um, somewhere in between. All right. So that is Meteor Shower. Michael, you have that coming up this week? Yes. Yeah. So, Peter, would you say in this case, the fact that it's 80 minutes is uh, an asset or a detriment? Neither, right in between. I mean, it, it, this is a real, you know, two and a half stars out of four show. So um, it, it, it it's long enough, and um, it it sets out. It does what it sets out to do perfectly fine in that eighty minute span. So uh, I don't know that it could have stood even eighty two minutes. Um, but <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, uh, but uh, and no intermission, of course, uh, under those circumstances. But. Uh, um, if you have tickets already, um, okay, you know, you're, you're going to laugh a few times. So, uh, Steve Martin was on Saturday, Saturday night live last night, um, and did not mention meteor shower. 
No so kidding. I, thought, wow. I thought that he was just, he, you know, he made a quick hit appearance just on for a few minutes. And I thought for sure that the words meteor shower were going to come out of his mouth, but I didn't. Of course. Did not hear mm. it. Wow. So, Interesting. Uh, yeah. All right. Especially so, since he showed up at Bright Star a few times to, to play the um, uh, an instrument before the second act began. So he did what he could to keep Bright Star alive, you know. So, it, it, right. boy, that was, that was a missed opportunity to let the nation know he had to play on Broadway. Bright Star is, uh, I think, currently playing on the West Coast right oh, now. That's they right. Yeah, have yeah, their yeah. Production playing out there, uh, trying to give it a, a second life out there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, stars burn bright twice. Mm-hmm. All right. So uh, before we wrap up for the morning and get on to trivia, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of BroadwayRadio.com. There's a subscribe link that we each and every time we have an episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be downloaded to iTunes for you or Apple Podcasts, as it's now called. Of course, you don't have to listen to us in Apple Podcasts. You can listen to us in many ways. One of the ways is the iHeartRadio, uh, Google Play, TuneIn, Stitcher, all the different places that you can listen to finer podcasts will have Broadway Radio's uh, podcasts as well. Uh, contact information for Peter, for Michael, and for me, as well as uh, links to some of the things we've talked about today, uh, can be found at BroadwayRadio.com. And uh, Peter, what was the answer to last week's trivia? Well, the question I asked last week was, after Porky married Petunia, at the reception, she ran into a guest who never met the groom. In introducing Porky to the guest, the new bride said, what is also the name of the title of a song written for, but eventually dropped from, a Tony-winning musical. What's the name of the song? Well, to be fair, you'd have to know that Porky and Petunia are Warner Brothers, Looney Tunes, Merry Melodies characters, and they were pigs. So the answer is... My husband, the pig. Uh, that's what she would say when introducing. And um, that's a song that was dropped from A Little Night Music early on. Richard Brennan was the first to get it, followed by Kerr Lockhart, Jack Leshner, John Baccarella, and Jed Slaughter. So my congratulations to those because I thought this was a tough one. All right. I think this is a tough one, too, but we'll see what you think. I'll admit that the two names I'm looking for aren't spelled the same, but they certainly sound the same. Okay. One is the maiden name of a character who, in the musical, was married to a character that was portrayed by an actor who won a Tony for playing that role. The other is the actual name of an actress who won a Tony Award. What's the name? (laughs) (laughs) All right. If you know this, then email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com and we'll let you know if you're on the right track. So on behalf of Michael Portantier and Peter Felicia, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. I swear I'd give my life for you Some nights I wake up Reaching for him I feel his shadow brush my head But it's just moonlight on my bed